Please be seated and we're going to have our reading now. Thank you, Bruce. Ian has just prayed about love, so how appropriate it is that we have some words from Paul, um, love in action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, and as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to be to God. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for one another. Let's reach out. Even as we've been talking about love, let's grab uh, those by the hands uh, next to us. Make a new friend if we need to. If you're sitting, or, sitting on your own, then reach out a hand to an angel. <laughs> Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. We pray that you would indeed, even as you've been this morning, not only reminding us of your love, but filling us with your love. That we could really reflect your wonderful, wonderful love in our own lives and to everyone around us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, my title this morning um, and what I would love to share falls within our month of discernment. Uh, my title this morning is A Pastoral Church in a Fragmented Age. A Pastoral Church in a Fragmented Age. And uh, what I'd really love to share with us this morning um, is what I think is the answer to two problems. Um, the first problem is that the church across our congregations is growing and expanding. So on a conservative estimate, um, we're hosting around 400 uh, on Sundays across our congregations, which is wonderful. Um, 
two weeks ago, we hosted about 480. Um, and so, you know, things are expanding here at the 9, here at um, the 11, uh, quite in a pronounced way. Uh, and also things are expanding at Washington. Um, and there's so many good things. And I think one of the problems with that is um, numbers are important because we want hundreds and hundreds of people to meet Jesus, uh, as Ian was um, praying and leading us in before. But actually, we also want a quality of discipleship and a powerful, loving, generous community that reflects who God is and reflects who Jesus is in an ever-increasing way. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, by the way that you love one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. And one of the challenges as we're growing is getting lost, forgetting things that are happening to people's lives, not noticing one another, and etc., etc. This is not a new problem. It was a problem that happened in the early church, and so in Acts chapter 6, they had to restructure themselves uh, as the community was expanding. We are working on some of the restructuring things, and we'll talk to you about that in the springtime. Uh, but what I wanted to say this morning is not the announcing of initiatives, um, but what I wanted to really talk about this morning is what it might look like, and to inspire us afresh about what it might look like to be a pastoral church and uh, that that would just be something that we can all step into as uh, we face this. Um, the other problem, you might say, is that I think, um, and I don't know if it's a problem, it's probably one of the things that the Holy Spirit is doing, is that I feel like we are broadening in accordance with how the Holy Spirit is moving with us. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. A pastoral church in a fragmented age. I don't need to labour the point that the world is increasingly fragmenting. I think we all know that and sense that. And that isn't fuelled by a media propaganda. It's just the reality of things as they are. Some of the traditional ways um, are being lost and they're not being replaced with powerful new ways of being community, of strengthening families, of providing for you know, isolation, and et cetera, et cetera. We live in a very individualistic society now. When we were in um, the Arctic this summer, they have a completely different approach of relating to one another. So because, basically, the only three natural sources of anything that lives are seals, whales, and narwhal, everything else is flown in which means it's very, very expensive. So when someone goes hunting, forget the animal rights for a minute, when someone goes hunting, <laughs> we spent all our time in the south of Canada with our girls buying teddies and narwhals and whales, and then we went into the Arctic where they eat them. Um, so we had to sort of, you know, get over that one. Um, but anyway, if someone comes back, goes hunting and comes back with a narwhal, what they'll do is they'll slice it up and then they'll go home and they'll, they'll put a stock aside for their family. Then what they'll do is they'll go next door, and they'll say, hello, right, here's what we've just procured, hunting, boom, here's a stash for you. Then they'll go to the next house, and they'll go right down the street, sharing all the spoils of what they've come back with. We don't do anything like that, do we? Can you imagine someone on my road who gets a 
Christmas bonus at work and sets aside a portion for the family, then knocks on the next door and says, hey, I'd like to give you a bit. Then goes to the next house, hey, I'd like to give you a bit. And they have a completely different mindset from us who just think about me and what I've earned and what affects me. And so we are coming against powerful cultural forces that talk to us and tell us that we should focus very individually and not think about the community we live in. Before I even talk, you know, talk more about this, I was just thinking about the quality of testimonies this morning. You know, they're all about love, aren't they? And reaching out for one another, and it is wonderful. And also involving some of the ways that God has been breaking in and moving. You know, I'm not sure if Catherine really did justice to what happened to Gavin, because it truly was a miracle, and without God's intervention, he would have had an early promotion to glory, which, praise the Lord, he's given us <laughs> some extra time to enjoy him, uh, this side of, of meeting Jesus. And when we think about a pastor, and when, or a pastor in your dialect, um, not the things that you boil for about 10 minutes and then eat. <laughs> um, if you've got a carbohydrate intolerance, it'd be intense damage. Um, who would be the model pastor? Okay, it's like, what's, what's got a bushy tail, eats nuts? <laughs> it's probably a squirrel, but I think the answer must be Jesus. So, um, okay, who is the model pastor? What did he call himself? I am the good shepherd, yeah. And you see Jesus pastorally demonstrating God's love, don't you? Do you remember that beautiful episode with Peter on the beach in Galilee? Post-resurrection, where Peter has royally failed. He's been a complete coward when the moment really came. A few hours after swearing to Jesus in the, in the, uh, at the Last Supper that he'd never betray him and he'd go with him to the death. And then three times within the space of a few short hours, he completely betrays him. And Jesus comes and cooks breakfast and just so movingly guides Peter through his three times betrayal and restores his heart. And not only restores his heart, but releases him to actually go and become the person that Jesus had called him to be earlier in his ministry as a key rock on which the church would be built. You see Jesus being the good shepherd restoring Peter, don't you? But then when we think about our wonderful blue-eyed, long hair, pale-skinned Jesus, the good shepherd, we have all sorts of other quite challenging ways that he's a pastor. Do you remember um, the rich young ruler? I always find quite a frightening story. Yeah, this guy is a powerful young man. You know, he's influential. He's able to do anything. In fact, he has done everything that's required according to the law. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, have you fulfilled the law? And he says, yeah, I've done everything. And Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, my friend. You need to sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Now, is Jesus being a pastor? I don't know. I mean, if it, you know, 
send him to Ian. He'd have a nice cup of tea on the boil, a few biscuits, you know, and uh, all, you know, all of those things. Hang on a minute. Maybe don't sell everything. I mean, maybe 75% maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty, you know, that's a lot. I mean, he's the rich young ruler. 75% that would go a long way, wouldn't it? We could alleviate some poverty and provide for some widows and all of that. What does Jesus do? He says, for you, my friend, looking straight into his heart, he says, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Because Jesus, as a pastor, is demonstrating his concern for the heart, which I think is probably right at the core of what it means to be pastoral. He knows that this guy, for whatever reason, he can do anything because he's very powerful in his life. But there's one thing which is holding him back, and presumably a too close attachment to material possessions. And what happens? Jesus says, come on in, cup of tea, I'm going to lead you through 12 sessions of counselling. You know, we'll deal with your over, over, you know, attachment to material things, and you can do it. Start with 10%, then 20%, then 30 The rich young ruler just looks at him, and then he goes away. And one of the gospel accounts is so moving, I think, because it says that, uh, and I think it's Luke that says this, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. But he doesn't go chasing after him. Because as a pastor, he's dealing with his heart. And we don't know how the story finishes. We don't know if he returned. We don't know if he waded up. But we, we see Jesus pastorally dealing with the heart issues. Do you see what I mean? One of the other moving stories is the woman with the issue of blood, isn't it? How does Jesus deal with her? He doesn't really deal with her very much, does he? But you can imagine someone being in our midst, you know, with a, a 12-year ongoing medical condition. And Jesus walks in, surrounded by people. She pushes through. She touches his cloak. And power is released through him. And she's healed. But Jesus, not only, I guess, rejoicing in her healing, restores her standing in the community as a pastor. I guess he's con concerned about her heart, her life, and where she fits. And he affirms her in the sight of all those around her who would have known that she was unclean and worthy of being put out. And Jesus says, your faith, my daughter, has made you well and commends her. The point I'm trying to make is that being pastoral requires a focus on the heart. It needs the resources of heaven, and it looks and feels like love according to God. That Ian could tell me all his woes and everything, and if I was Jesus, I would have the wisdom and listening ear to listen to the Lord to release whatever is in his heart and to restore him into the community. Does this make any sense to us? Now, there's no doubt that um, I think we've been growing in some of our supernatural 
and spiritual gifts and understanding. But it also needs to be borne out in action, as Bruce introduced the reading with us. And I now turn to uh, Romans uh, chapter 12. And I'd love to um, just walk us through this. I think we had it from, was it the NIV? Let's read it from the Passion Translation and have a look at what Paul is, is writing to this community with Gray. Let the inner movement of your heart always be to love one another. Never play the role of an actor wearing a mask. Despise evil and embrace everything that is good and virtuous. Be devoted to tenderly loving your fellow believers as members of one family. Try to outdo yourselves in respect and honour of one another. Be enthusiastic to serve the Lord, keeping your passion towards him boiling hot. Radiate with the glow of the Holy Spirit and let him fill you with excitement as you serve him. Let this hope burst forth within you, releasing a continual joy. Don't give up in the time of trouble, but commune with God at all times. Take a constant interest in the needs of God's beloved people and respond by helping them, eagerly welcoming people as guests into your home. Speak blessing, not cursing, over those who reject and persecute you. Celebrate with those who celebrate. Weep with those who grieve. Live happily together in a spirit of harmony and be as mindful of one another's worth as you are your own. Do not live with a lofty mindset, thinking you're too important to serve others. Be willing to do menial tasks and identify with those who are humble-minded. Do not be smug or even think for a moment you know it all. Never hold a grudge or try to get even. Here's a great phrase. Plan your life around the noblest way to benefit others. Do your best to live as everybody's friend. The simple question and challenge for us is, what if we did all of that? You know, some of this is just so compelling, isn't it? Don't wear a mask. Did you hear that phrase? Be honest with one another, both in giving and receiving. You know, some of us are really good at being honest and sharing our weaknesses, and some of us are not, and sort of zip it all up, keep it buried inside. You know, but what if we took those off and said, actually, I really need God at the moment. Can you help me? Can you pray with me? You know, we've got our own households and our own children and grandchildren or people around us, our neighbours. But what if we were devoted to one another? As fellow believers, verse 10, as if we were members of one family. You know, so that when Mark bleeds, I bleed. And when he rejoices, I rejoice. You know, to have our hearts open to one another so that we're able to celebrate and mourn in equal measure with our fellow brothers and sisters. 
to practice hospitality. You know, I'd love to have a roast chicken at Ian and Sally's house. Wouldn't you? I'd love to go there. I bet they do a nice roast chicken, a bit of lemon zest on the top, and, you know, maybe some nice crunchy parsnips, and, you know, it'd be terrific. They can't have us all round, though, can they? But what if we all took responsibility over the next six months and said, I'm going to... I'm going to have a roast chicken on my table. Who could I invite from church? I maybe invite someone not from church as well and get people rubbing shoulders. You know, if we all did that, rather than waiting for an invite from Ian and Sally for their roast chicken with the lemon zest on the top, then actually wouldn't it just be a, a, just an eruption of, of sharing and, you know, including and belonging and, and all of us doing that? You know, not relegating ourselves thinking... Actually, Ian and Sally, and maybe Mark and Jeanette, Andrew and Ruth, but actually all of us. And, you know, sometimes we're not able to provide food, but we could go for a walk, couldn't we? Hey, if you're not doing anything, why don't we have a quick cup of coffee here and go for a walk together after church? You know, just reaching out and including. If we all did that, then actually no one's, no one's going to be left out. Can we be a place where we're inclusive, crossing social boundaries, none of us being too proud for anybody else, all of us looking for who's on the edge, looking for who isn't being included, looking for whose family live away, looking for who isn't, you know, getting invites, you know, who is maybe a bit edgy in the eyes of most people, but actually just needs to sit at, sit at someone's table and be included. Could we never, ever, ever hold a grudge? Wouldn't that be amazing? You know, that we could be a place where, you know, people could be filthy to us unintentionally. If they're being intentionally filthy to us, then maybe we just need to say, oi, stop. <laughs> but actually, we are just the best at forgiving, the best at loving. Do you see, if we learn these things... I think that's such a powerful witness to all those around us. Don't you think? Because I tell you what, the world is a place these days where offence is taken all the time. You, know, you say anything and someone somewhere will have been offended because it's not politically correct. <laughs> you know, or whatever. I'm just, you know, we're such an offended society, aren't we? But actually, what, what if we could be the people who, and it sounds like someone said 2,000 years ago, if we're offended, what do you do? Hold on, this cheek's still stinging, but I'm just going to turn my face to offer you the other one. Because that's just the way of Jesus. And I think if we did this and had a genuine honesty and were able to say, you know, the things in your heart, the things in my heart. We need God himself, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, to do a work in me. In the context of family, then I think that could be the most powerful, ever-increasing flow of God's love, like a wave that goes over our church and our communities. Why doesn't this just happen naturally? Why doesn't it? 
Why doesn't it just happen naturally? I mean, it is happening naturally in many ways, isn't it? Many of us are reaching out and, and doing it. But I'm looking at all of us here thinking, what if we all rose up? You know, we, we can all spend our lives waiting to feel good enough and qualified enough and, and all of that. But I think at the heart of our faith, as 12 fishermen, tax collectors and, you know, bulls in China shops who changed the face of the world. So you're never going to have enough Bible knowledge. You're never going to pray enough. You're never going to be competent or, qual- or you know, rich enough or whatever. It is. It's never going to happen, but it begins by moving forward from where we are in the power of God's Spirit. So why doesn't it happen naturally? Partly because we're raised in individualism and independence, aren't we? So we feel sorry for other people, but the truth is that we are our brother and sister's keepers. So when Mark's having a tough time, I need to get out of my independence and allow my heart to feel what he's going through, and not just feel it, but reach out to him, jump in his miry pit, and say, come on, let's find a ladder by the grace of God together, and let's climb out together. We can be afraid of getting burnt out or drained, can't we? Anyone? Well, I'd love, I'd love socially polished, fun, joyful, well-rounded people to come to my lunch for my roast chicken with my lemon zest on it. But the other lot, I'm sure somebody else will take responsibility for them. Do you know what I mean? You know, one of the things that's absolutely a delight in the church as a whole is that we're filling up with um, increasing numbers of people with, who just need a bit of extra help and, and have some additional needs. You know, and that requires us to love and to provide and to grow ourselves. You know, um, I don't want to sort of pick out you know, individuals or, or reference these things, but if we all took responsibility... We can do this, can't we? But not just leave things to some of us. Um, We can fear whether we've got enough money, enough to provide. Do you know what? Some of us have a lot. Some of us don't have very much. That's the beauty of the Christian church, where we come together in God's family. But do you know what? We can all go for a walk. We can all make a cup of tea. You don't have to do a chicken with all the pigs in blankets and stuff all the trimmings and the dessert and chocolates with the coffee and all that. some of us can but some of us could manage a walk and a cup of tea you know and you know we can all get involved and give of what we can I'm just sort of looking at the early church and if you read the book of Acts it's completely miraculous because in one stroke 3,000 come into the church. And somehow they manage to be one in heart and mind. Somehow they manage to be utterly united. Somehow they manage to be a place where if anyone's in need, people are selling off property to provide. 
where they're breaking bread in their homes every single day and meeting together in a large crowd. And people are being added all the time. Miracles are happening daily. And I think it must be, it must be something that happened to them that every single one of them said, do you know what, I am going to be a receiver of God's love and I'm going to be a transmitter of God's love. I'm not going to wait for Ian and Sally to invite me to their table. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I think that as they all gathered around the Lord and received from his love and then transmitted his love, that looked like a place where no one was in need. Now, I think we're doing this in many ways brilliantly. But what's interesting is the needs and challenges grow. It requires all of us to rise up and to jump into the game. Everyone to reach out, everyone to pick up the phone. And if we all did this, then I think how powerful could that be? There's some, um, I'm going to finish with this. There's some incredible testimonies in here. Incredible testimonies. I mean, read the stories about the young people. They're so amazing. There's some powerful miracles happening. But also, if you read the stories, what they're seeing is a sense of love and family, which, you know, they just hadn't tasted anywhere else before. If you read Veronica's story from Washington, you know, she had a miracle in her life and then she was folded into family. And it's just how it's got to be, isn't it? And I, I just, I guess, as we look to the future and as the church moves forward, you know, we need to have our Acts chapter 6 moments where we restructure the church and put in place things that help us not lose sight of anyone who is getting lost amongst us. We'll talk about that in the new year and into the spring. But also, what if we caught God's love so powerfully that we just live this out? I think even before we try and transform our, our villages, what if we did this amongst us? And not only amongst us, but we also gave it away to those who are going to arrive in about 10 minutes' time. And gave and received from them. And gave and received at Washington. And gave and received at Whiston. That we as the church moved in such love that people would look at us and say, we might not even know the name of Jesus yet, but there's something energizing them which must be literally out of this world. And I better work out what it is. Let's be a people who are a pastoral, loving church in an age which is fragmenting. And let's be the answer for some of the problems that are going on in this day and age. In Jesus' name, amen.